If you've been with us through this series, you would now know that the book of Revelation, which we are studying, teaches us, among many things, three very important truths that I like to highlight. First, that God has a perfect plan. Number two, that God's plan is inclusive of all things. And that would include that which is desirable, that which is not desirable. And thirdly, that God is executing that plan to perfection. I would invite you to walk with me through the description of each section of Revelation that you find in your insert. Note that we have begun with a series, a preface series called Keys That Unlock Revelation. Now let's look through the overview of this series that we've entitled The Rest of the Story. First we began with the throne and the scroll. And what I'd like for you to take notice of is the description of each area that I, section that I have given in this overview. Note it says, God has a plan and is in control. Then we covered what was called the seals, suggesting that God is executing his plan and particularly to the benefit of believers as we talk about seals. Thirdly, we introduced the beast, the false prophet, and the great harlot, Satan's three allies who are seeking to thwart that wonderful plan that God has. Then the bowls, where we come today, the bowls suggesting that God is enacting judgment against those who reject his plan. Now, as Christians, many of you here are already followers of Christ. Many of you are simply seeking answers to questions so that you might explore further about being a follower of Christ. Let me speak to you that are Christians. We are varied greatly here, I know, as to our belief in buying into the idea that God's plan includes all things. Some of us, true Christians, say, I don't think it's inclusive of all things because that which is catastrophe in life, I don't think God would have a part in. That's not the God I know and worship, and therefore I exclude that from his plan. There would be other Christians like myself here who would say, I believe that God's plan includes all things, even that which is most undesirable though he has a perfect plan that is working together for good to those who love him, called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And that includes all things. We talk about those catastrophes of life, the undesirable things of this life, in the term of seals in the book of Revelation. There are seven seals that we have already looked at but God uses these difficulties and these these tragedies of life for you and me as believers to shape us into someone that we need to become God truly uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves now we come to the issue of challenge does it include all things or not? And that's my challenge to you. 
consider the Word of God. I used these scriptures two weeks ago. I'd like to repeat them because I know many of you were not here, and even if you were, important to hear again. Listen carefully to these few verses. Amos 3, 6, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Lamentations 3.38 Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Isaiah 45.7 The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And then 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7, the Lord kills, the Lord makes alive. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich, the Lord brings low, the Lord also exalts. That's why we would agree with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1:11 that he works all things in the counsel of his own will. He includes all in his perfect plan. My testimony is that I... Hated that early in my spiritual pilgrimage. I love that truth now. It's changed dramatically in how I view it. Imagine the loss of a child. Can there be anything more painful than the loss of a child? And hearing yesterday of a story of a pastor who was dealing with a, child, a parent who had lost their child. They looked to the pastor and said, I will never believe that God had anything to do with this. Never. And the pastor wisely, understanding the word of God, responded and said, can you imagine if you had to sit here right now and to think truly what it means that God would have nothing to do with this? Think of the alternative. Was this bad luck for you? Is God out of control? Do you have no one you can trust in all things? The alternative is much, much worse. But that's for us to debate and for us to be challenged in Scripture. Consider what you believe, Christian. We have theologies, and those theologies become foundations for life. And whatever we presuppose, we're going to build our theology. And if we're on the wrong foundation, what we build becomes structurally very, very dangerous. And so... I leave that with you as believers. Now, to you that are seekers among us, regarding those that aren't yet followers of Christ, though Christians vary on our view of the acceptance of God's plan, the non-Christian, though he may intellectually agree that God has a plan, has in essence rejected the plan. Rejects the plan of a rebirth necessary for relationship with God and therefore goes his or her own way. And so we have introduced in Scripture what are called seven trumpets. Those are the very same life calamities that we call seals, except these are experienced by non-believers. The very same activities of life. They span from the first coming of Christ to the very end time in the book of Revelation. And these trumpets serve as an initial judgment, but far more than that, also, it is a warning to say, come unto the living God, give your heart over to him, a trumpet. And some of the nonbelievers, as they experience the trumpet calamities of life, 
they actually see those as that which God used to bring them to him. Now we're going to introduce a third type of calamity. It's the same calamity as the seals and as the trumpets, the very same experiences of life, but directed now to the non-believer whose heart is cold and will not receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Never will. And for this person, it is the end of their life on this earth, and it is referred to as bowls of wrath. And there are seven bowls, as there were seven seals and seven trumpets. Let's look at these found beginning in chapter 15 of the book of Revelation. It will span the 15th and the 16th chapters. We'll quickly run through this and then bring it to conclusion at the end with an understanding that I think will open up these two chapters to us. First of all, we see what I have entitled the praise of heaven in the first four verses. We are introduced here in this new section of Revelation in a heavenly scene, first seeing the angels holding seven plagues in verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Seven symbolizing divine completion and perfection. Then we see the victorious saints standing on what's called the sea of glass in verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. Let me suggest as we pause here that this is symbolizing God's transparent righteousness as it is revealed in judgment upon the wicked. It goes on to say, and those who had come off victorious from the beast, that's the power structures of the evil one in society, and from his image and from the number of his name, and then it says these standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. We've referred now to the believing community who have not followed the beast. They've not followed the evil one and his power structures yielding submission to that evil of life, but rather carry a mark on the way they think, on their forehead, and on their hand, by the way they work, that they are true followers of God as opposed to the mark of man, 666, on the head or on the forehand that many here today carry because we think as the non-believer, we act as the non-believer. It's obvious by the way we live. And so now we see these believers standing in heaven as it were as we see now the song that is sung to the Almighty. By the way, as we're in this portion of Scripture, we reflect here what has happened in the Old Testament in the Exodus. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, there is deliverance given to the people of God from Pharaoh and his people. There is an Exodus, there's a deliverance, and then there's a song of victory. And we see a very similar deliverance illustrated here and now a song of victory. Verses 3 and 4, the sung song to Almighty God. And they sang the song of Moses. They're again pushing back to the Old Testament analogy. The bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. 
And so this song declaring to the entire universe that the righteous character of God stands forever, even in the sentences that are about to be given in what are called the bowls of wrath. So that now leads us to the second of the three major portions of this section. This is the preparing now of the bowls. First with the opening of the temple in verses 5 through 7. After these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. Now there was a tabernacle, a sanctuary in the Old Testament which contained the Ark of the Covenant and its testimony. So it's giving the imagery of the Old Testament but we're really talking about heaven here. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple meaning they came from God, clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures, these are the four angels we've seen earlier, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Full, which indicates the Fierceness, the unmitigated character of God's wrath, it is full. It's followed in verse 8 by what we call the filling of the temple. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of the Lord and from his power. That smoke is symbolizing the full and thorough operation of God's holy anger. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. That means no one could enter now, meaning no intercession permissible now. It's over now. His righteous anger has now shut up his own tender mercies. It's time for the wrath of God. And so we see the command from the temple. Verse 1 of chapter 16, And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And we would assume that this would be the voice of Almighty God. And so now preparation has been made. And we come to the last section, the pouring of the bowls. We're going to reflect back here in the imagery of the Egyptian plagues. If you remember the plagues of the book of Exodus, chapter 7 through 10. It reads, first of all, the first bowl, verse 2, which I would describe as incurable diseases. The first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast, that is, non-Christians, and those who worship his image. Again, referring to people throughout the history of the church, the first bowl, diseases leading to death. Then in verse 3, we see the second bowl, maritime calamities, those calamities that take place on the sea. It reads in verse 3, And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then we see thirdly, the third bowl, river accidents, verse 4 third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the streams of waters and they became blood causing floods that take life water sport accidents that take place 
on the waters. Now there's going to be a break, and we see breaks taking place almost in every section of the book of Revelation. It's a parenthesis of sorts just to give the Christian a, a, a minute to reflect on this from God's perspective, just so that we understand what's happening. And so here we're going to see the truth being re-echoed that punishment that is being given here is truly righteous retribution. It is okay, it is right. Though I know some of you here as seekers particularly are saying this is not right for God to do this. Here's what God says in verses 5 through 7. A declaration of God's righteousness and judgment. It reads, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Now that's the question there, seeker. Do you and do I, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, deserve this kind of wrath or not? That is the theological question you need to answer in life. It'll shape your future beliefs of God, man, and the world in which we live. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And that leads us to the fourth bowl. We now enter back into the disasters of life that come even from the hand of God. Verses 8 and 9, And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. These would be fire disasters. And it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. They blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. They did not repent so as to give him glory. Meaning this was no trumpet to these people. There was no turning around. Death by means of the sun's heat or that is by fire. Then we come to the fifth bowl, death by governmental collapse. We see verse 10 and 11, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. Now the throne of the beast representing the center of anti-Christian power and perhaps here we would assume governmental powers and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Throughout the history of mankind there have been the overtaking of governments, the fall of powers, and in so there are always deaths. We saw it in Assyria in the Old Testament, in Babylon. We saw it in Rome. We see it in modern countries today. I think we can say we're seeing such take place in Yugoslavia, the death of many. Many who have nothing to do with the governmental situation. It's not the factor at all, but it's a calamity of life, and it touches many. Now with that, we come to the most intriguing of the bowls because we're familiar with this term, Armageddon. And this is the battle of Armageddon, which is given in verses 12 through 16. It reads, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now the Euphrates was the ancient boundary of Israel. 
And when we say the waters were dried up, meaning that there's no protection now, and so the evil peoples that live beyond the people of God have right of passage now to come in upon the people of God and bring destruction to them. And that's what happens in what is called the Battle of Armageddon. The Christian community appears as if it is going to die. It is the same as the little season of Satan that we found in chapter 11, where Satan now is bound, we read, in the... New Testament era, bound from one activity, deceiving all the nations, free to do everything else in terms of, of bringing uh, all kind of, of accusations to us personally, temptations to us. But one thing he cannot do is, as he did in the Old Testament days, deceive all the nations, but the Bible says there'll be a little season, a brief while at the very end, that he would be released. And we studied last week the two witnesses representing the church. And in that hour, in the last day, the church's life will be smothered, so to speak, to appear as if it is even dead. And then the unrighteous will rejoice over the fact they have defeated the church. And then in a moment's notice, that will be changed and victory will come to the believing community and the imagery of the two dead witnesses rise to life again. And this is what it's referring to, this point in time, which we would call the Battle of Armageddon. It goes ahead in verse 13 and says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirit like frogs, for they are spirits of demons. Now, this is the abominable and loathsome, repulsive character being represented in this way representing satanic, hellish idols and prophets and the methods of Satan which he uses. Everything is coming to bear now upon the church. Verse 14, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Parenthesis here. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. End of parenthesis. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now let me explain this as best I know how. The modern view of eschatology, the study of the last days that were covered in the, the, uh, the Keys series, sees this as a literal, physical battle that will take place in Israel, a place called Megiddo and the mountain Har, the, by the mountain of Megiddo. It is viewed that this battle is going to be one that takes place at the end of a seven-year tribulation. At that time, Christ and his saints are going to come to earth and are going to bring victory for God's people. I would suggest to you that this is not such an individual, single, physical battle that is taking place in the future in Israel. I would suggest to you that this is a battle that has taken place through the history of the church from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. Let me explain why I say that. The terminology of this Megiddo comes out of Judges chapter 4 beginning in verse 5. 
There in that passage, Israel looks to be defeated. If you remember the story, King Jabin and of the Canaanites was uh, plundering Israel. Uh, King Jabin and General Sisera had 900 chariots. They were overwhelming the Israelites. Though Deborah believes God and says to Barak, go fight. And he does against all odds. And it is the battle fought at Megiddo by the mountain there of Megiddo. God intervenes in a supernatural way and God's people prevail. Now you need to know that Megiddo was an important city in ancient Israel. Very important. In fact, to control Megiddo was to control the Middle East both commercially and militarily. Pharaoh Necho once said, and it's recorded that he spoke this way, he who controls Megiddo has taken a thousand cities because if you've got Megiddo, you've got it all. Just because of where it's located, its posture and so forth. Hence, Har Megiddon became a symbol of every battle where believers are oppressed and without hope except God intervening and giving the victory would suggest that it would refer to any decisive battle determining the outcome of a larger war would be somewhat like us using the term the battle at Waterloo well that's my battle at Waterloo we're not saying we fought there we're not bringing that battle to a physical bearing upon who we are right here we're using it as an illustration of many battles of life that was my battle at Waterloo I would suggest though that there will be a final Armageddon that final Armageddon coincides with the release of the evil one for the brief season and then the coming in the clouds of the Lord Jesus Christ not at the end of a seven-year tribulation but at the end of time which is the end of all and that's when the church ultimately wins because Satan and all of his allies are defeated once and forever so sixthly we have the battle of Armageddon it sure does away with a whole lot of the spectacular I know but I think you'll find it to be much stronger much stronger in terms of good interpretive principle of the Bible number seven and by the way I may be wrong never forget that Study yourselves. Number seven, the, the seventh bowl, wouldn't we expect it to be what? What judgment? The final judgment, of course. All the segments of Revelation end with the final judgment being described. And so here once again we see it. I won't read every verse, but 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. That's significant, meaning life on earth now will perish. When you have no air, you have no life. And the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Look how it's described. Verse 18, there were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, moved down to 21, and huge hailstones, the end of 21, and men blasphemed God because the plague of the hail, because the plague was extremely severe. This is what would be called the fall, ultimate fall of Babylon. It's the crushing blow for those who wear the mark. It is 
worldwide, all of those who turn against the things of God receive their final judgment at that time. Now that ends the two chapters. We went through them very, very quickly. Was that not the most fun study you've ever had? It's not a very popular topic, I know. In fact, I said at the beginning of this series, just to a few close enters, I said, you know, there's only one message that I don't look forward to teaching. It's chapters 15 and 16 because I know there'll be many who are unchurched, those that are outside a relationship with Christ that visit us as we have every week and who say, yeah, it's just hell and damnation preached. That's all they must talk about. That must be all they think is the judgment of God. No, that's not true. In fact, I want to underscore that very point by what I conclude in saying here. I hear a question asked me in challenge and debate of Christianity all the time. It goes like this. How in the world could a loving, holy God allow people, good people, moral people, religious people outside of Christianity to be damned for all eternity, to receive such wrath? How can you believe in a God like that? My response, though I will give my response, if I were to simply answer with a question, it would be this. How can you believe in a holy, righteous God that would allow sinful, religious, and moral people like you and me to live in heaven for all eternity? How can he do that? Well, what do you mean? Because we're good people. That's how he can do it. And I say, ah, that's where I disagree with you. I disagree that we're good people. And that's where we have to build our foundation, either on a presupposition that man is basically good or man is totally wicked through and through. Is he as bad in his expression as he could be? No. But is he fully dead? Yes, dead in his trespasses and sins. Some on the one hand, even among Christians, want to believe that man is wounded morally. He needs help. He's not as good as he should be, but he is pretty good, and he does need the help of God. Versus those of us that would say, according to the Bible, we suggest the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. There's none who seeks for God, that our best righteousness, as God says, is as filthy rags. There's nothing good within us. And so my response in detail to that question is you have to understand how sinful we are. I have used before here the illustration of Hitler because it speaks so well to us. We all know the, the heinous life of, of Hitler and so we have no problems emotionally thinking of him being judged for all eternity with whatever wrath God could muster. We seem to think that's fair and just. But what we fail to understand is, according to the Bible, that you and I are no more dead in sin than he is. It was, as I have perhaps used among some of you in groups, the illustration of growing up in, with a grandfather who owned a funeral home. And so when we went to see granddaddy and grandmother, we played at the funeral home. That was the thing to do. And there would be those that were dead. Those who had recently died, those who had died maybe three weeks before and their body just found. Which one was more dead? I say they're equally dead. 
which one appeared more heinous? The one dead for three weeks. The stench, the appearance, even as a Hitler. But again, no more dead than the most moral, religious person who rejects the living God as his Savior. I realize that many people say, well, it's not fair, even if you're true right there, because God, God is letting some people hear the gospel, the good news, and other people don't hear it. And so you say that's fair? I say, no, that's called grace. Fairness would be none of us ever hearing the gospel, never hearing it. You see, we have an assumption, so many of us, we have an assumption that God owes us a redeemer. If that be the case, it's not grace at all. He owes us nothing. We have an assumption that is a wrong assumption that if God does show grace to one, he must show grace to all, and he uses a parable in Scripture. Jesus teaches it in Matthew 20, and he says, not so at all. You remember the parable of the workers who come in? He hires some in the very early morning, and he hires them at a denarius, a day's wage, and then at, at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, and then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he keeps hiring people, and he goes to them and says, I'll pay you a denarius. And then at the very end, at the early evening, he pays those that were hired at 5 o'clock the very same that he hired those that were hired in the early morning. And what did the people in the early morning say? That's not fair. But listen to what Jesus said. He answers and says to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what's yours, go your way. But if I wish to give to the last man the same as to you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And he's just saying, look, there's no law that's been broken to show mercy and grace in unusual ways to some. But see, the problem exists here. We don't really buy in to the condition the Bible describes man to be in, and that is dead in his trespasses and sins. Now, I share that even to you that are those we call seekers here because at this church, you will never hear about God's wrath or God's judgment, his punishment, without hearing of his grace. And the reason the message of God's wrath and his punishment and the sinfulness of man is given is to draw us to see the great value of his grace. Let me assure you, I don't preach this message today to gather an audience. This is not a popular topic, I will assure you. There will be people who won't come back next week because I gave it. We're not here trying to build an audience. We're trying to build people who can live life to the glory of God. And I'll suggest you'll never get there in your spiritual pilgrimage until you finally come to the resolve that I am, as the Bible says, with my best righteousness as filthy rags. And that's why Jesus taught in the first of several Beatitudes, you must be poor in spirit, that is, bankrupt spiritually, where you've come to the place to say, I have nothing and I'm in need of everything and God, you alone can give it and therefore I reach out to your grace and your mercy. Please give it to me. I cannot earn it. I cannot achieve it. I cannot do anything to get it. You've got to give it to me. That's the person that falls to the mercy and grace of God. And the good news is this. There is no sin 
in your life or my life, before we're a Christian or after we're a Christian, that is not overcome by the grace of God. God's grace is that big. We cannot out it. God's grace, giving us what we don't deserve because of the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. I often use the passage of the third chapter of Romans where it says, there's none who does good, there's none who seeks for God, no, not one. There's none righteous, not even one. So to end it, the truth of it is, God wouldn't be a righteous God if he let people like you and me as sinners into heaven without the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, somebody paying the penalty. Because he said the wages of sin is death, he made it very clear. He also said, he also said without a redeemer, without the shedding of the blood, there is no life. God not being a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. When he says it, he does it. And so it kind of puts in perspective a verse in Romans 3, verse 26, where it says, he did all of this, referring to redemption, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If God let me into heaven outside of the work of the cross, having my sins dealt with and paid for, God would no longer be just. And wanting to be the justifier and must remain just, he sends his son to die for many. And so as I close, can I ask you, seeker, would this be a time that maybe you would see the need in your life and turn to the cross for his imputed righteousness? Let me encourage you, let this be the hour. Bow your head and heart. Invite him into your life. And Christian, do you know what the great secret, at least one of the great secrets to joyous Christian living is? It's seeing that God has a plan. And that plan includes all things, and it's being executed to perfection. When you and I believe that through and through, that's when we become anxious for nothing. No anxiety. So my father dies two years ago, this month. I have no certainty of a relationship with Christ whatsoever. If not, he experienced the bowl of wrath. Included in the plan of God. If I can only believe that, I can live without anxiety. I don't understand. I don't like. I wouldn't choose it my own way. But you know what? Life can be lived without anxiety. That's the good news of God's plan. And that's the reason for revelation. That we might see it. That we might understand it. That we might embrace it. That we might live it. May every Christian here have a solid foundation to build your life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow now to say thank you for giving to us a redeemer that you might be just and the justifier. We would ask you now that you would grant to those that would seek you hearts open unto you to receive you even now. Come into that life. Change them forever and ever. May they follow you. For those of us that are believers, our God, we pray, may we know life without anxiety because we understand you and your execution of your plan. May we know it better and better 
May we embrace it because of our love for you. We thank you and we pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.